is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Lizette Austin, host of the award-winning Globetrotter Lounge podcast, which features diverse women sharing their most creative ways to travel. Lizette is known for her travel hacking expertise, skills which she shares in her online course, Jet Set 101, Becoming a Travel Hacker. But it's her personal passion for DNA travel that she's sharing with us today. Lizette is an adoptee from Seattle who, with the help of consumer DNA testing, managed to track down her birth parents. The experience of delving into her roots inspired Lizette to explore her family geography, traveling to the places her biological ancestors lived hundreds of years ago. In this episode, Lizette shares the story of a family reunion in Charleston, South Carolina, an experience that stirred complex emotions as she grappled with family stories, Black history, the immigrant experience, and the integration of her own identity in light of everything she was learning and experiencing. It's a fascinating episode. Please enjoy Lizette Austin. Well, Lizette, it's so nice to have you. I'm really excited to chat with you. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I normally start off by asking, where did your love of travel originate? Well, that's actually a good question. It's funny because I could have talked about that trip as the trip that changed me, but there was a big trip when I was 19 to Italy where I was studying Italian abroad in Perugia. And I think that's when at least I got the idea that I really wanted to live abroad someday again and just wanted to travel as much as possible. But before that, my parents were really into traveling, my adoptive parents, and they took me everywhere. I was an only child and I had a privileged upbringing in the sense of my dad being a physician. So only child plus physician income equals I get to go on trips with my parents. So so I developed a love of travel and unfortunately fine hotels. Which kind of led me to my whole Jet Set Lizette thing because I just love a really nice hotel, but I couldn't always afford them. So you were born in Seattle and that was where you were adopted as well, right? Yes, that's correct. Yep. So tell me a bit more about your early years and how they shaped you. Well, again, um, adopted, born, raised in Seattle, close adoption and only child, as I mentioned, traveled a lot, as I mentioned. I had a very good education which did shape me, very fortunate that way, was exposed to quite a few things culturally. My adoptive mom is from Montreal, so I grew up speaking French, which was fabulous and still is fabulous. I also really enjoyed dance. I did a lot of dancing. I played piano, you know, so I felt like I was shown at an early age that there were a lot of things to explore in the world and that I I could do a lot of things creatively and that was supported. So all of those things shaped me. And my adoptive mom was quite the adventurer, I would say. Like I remember going to Mexico one year after she had knee surgery. That did not stop her. She had a full leg cast and she was somehow like hobbling up and down these steep bus steps and like making it happen with her crutches on the sand. You know, it's just like, we're doing this. So I had I was exposed to that kind of attitude, too. And I definitely don't let things get in my way when I really want to do something. So, yeah, those are some of the influences, I would say. 
And you said it was a closed adoption, which means that you didn't know who your birth parents were. Is that how it works? Yes, that's correct. It was something that was a practice at the time, most definitely. I was part of what's called the baby scoop era. So unfortunately, young, usually unwed mothers were pretty much told like, nope, you're too young. You can't do this. There was no support. There was no information for them. And it was typically the practice to just tell them, like, try to forget it ever happened. And then they would take the child and place the child and then sort of erase all information, kind of all the family information wasn't passed along just a little bit, a little bit of medical information, a little bit of descriptive information, but sometimes you didn't even know if that was accurate. And then, but no access to names, family names, no greater medical history, nothing like that. It was sealed and there was no way to actually get that information until recently they started opening things up, unless you had an intermediary and petitioned the courts, which I did do when I was 28. But anyway, so very closed, no idea. However, I will say, because my dad was a child psychiatrist, my adoptive father, he actually had a colleague who was involved in the whole process of my adoption because he consulted with my birth mother at one point, or not consulted, but he, you know, she saw him at one point. And so there was a little bit more information that I had than most people with a close adoption would have. So it sounds like you you grew up having very open dialogue with your adoptive parents about all of it, which is great. And do you remember that what age you were when you started to become a lot more curious about who your birth parents were? You know, I never really was very curious. I was one of the, um, there's, of course, many different experiences for adoptees. But for me, I was one of the ones that wasn't really interested in finding out anything. And maybe because I was told, you know, what they did know. And uh, we didn't talk about it a lot, but I always remembered knowing that I was adopted. So they apparently told me when I was about four. And I didn't really feel like I had any angst about it at the time at all. And I just kind of I don't know. I felt like it was I was meant to be where I was and that it fit, you know, my adoptive father is black, my adoptive mother is white. So therefore, and I mixed black and white. So it was like, oh, I even look like them. People wouldn't believe me when I said I was adopted. So I just didn't really have this drive. I had that little bit of info. Wasn't sure if it was totally accurate, but it seemed like it could be. And I knew she was very young, my birth mother. So it just was like, well, she just couldn't keep me. And that's how it goes. And there you have it. So I think what happened was that it was when I was around, well, I was in my late 20s. I met a doctor. I had a new doctor who was sort of flabbergasted that I didn't have any medical history. And other adoptees always relate to this. You know, they, you get to the part where they say, you know, oh, do you have any, um, you know, what kind of diseases are in your medical history? And you're just like, I don't know. I was adopted. That's all you can say. I have no idea. Mm. And so she was just like, you've got to find that out. Like, it's your birthright. Like, you can't not know your medical history. That's just not okay. Um, they don't really do it that way anymore, fortunately. So that started it, plus meeting a woman who was looking for her son. And then ultimately, I had my own son. So like, all these things started to open me up to like, wait a minute, I kind of want to know more. <laughs> you know, I have this big zero. And I'm kind of disassociated from my own history. So that's when it kind of started percolating. Mm, that makes sense. And then was this during the era when, you know, DNA home testing services were becoming available or was this prior, like before all of that? 
this was before all of that. I'm actually, I was born in 1970. I'm always like, wow, I'm getting super old. But yeah, so in my late 20s, it was the late 90s. And it was definitely before the DNA thing. And so I was able to petition the courts. And I did have a brief interaction with my birth mother at that time, but things didn't really work out for us to be in touch. But I had more medical history. But it wasn't until, and I and I figured there was a lot of mystery around my birth father. So I just figured, okay, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be for us to be in touch anyway. Now I know some more things. Okay, that's fine. But then I had my son. Then in 2001, you know, fast forward. Well, a lot of things happened. We won't get into all of that. But yes, DNA did finally enter the scene. And we can talk more about that. But that's, I didn't really get on that train to find anybody. I joined it because of my insane love of travel. And I just really wished I could know where in Africa I should go if I finally got to the African continent. So that's kind of why I joined Ancestry, really. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So originally you were just going to like find out, I guess, where your DNA would take you to in the world rather than specific individuals that you were looking for. Exactly. It's so funny. It must seem wild to you now, given how you started out trying to trace your genealogy, that now you just like do a little swab and everything (laughs) opens up. It's so So different. Yeah. Very different now. And obviously you hear all of these stories that some of them are like joyful reunions, but there's also a lot of emotional upheaval stories. Oh yeah. So So many. Talk a bit about, you know, what happened when you first joined Ancestry and, and what you started to discover. Yeah. So, okay. So by the time I joined Ancestry, I had become very obsessed with travel. Well, I always was into travel, but I was really finding ways to travel. I had figured out the whole credit card bonus, you know, miles and all this. And I had a lot of means with which to travel. So that's where I started, you know, putting my sights on the African continent, which ironically, I still haven't gotten to yet. But anyway, I was just like, yes, I can do this. I'd really like to know where I should go. I'd like to know where I'm from. And also being really aware of the fact that even if I could know who my Black family members were, that that didn't mean they would know either, you know, because the history, most likely, I would be uh, a descendant of slavery, of people who are enslaved. And so then, of course, that's like a double whammy. It's like adopted and uh, Mm. of African-American descent. Kind of, they share something there, right? Like mysteries all around. And so it's like having your identity taken away from you. And so I knew that even if I could find him and the family, uh, I still wouldn't know. So that's, I think that was also part of it. It was just like, look, this is going to have to happen. Thank goodness there's DNA testing now. And I'm going to do this. And um, I get on Ancestry. And actually, I had a friend who was also adopted who had found her birth family in a different way but then had gone on Ancestry and sort of confirmed everything, was like, oh, all these matches are real. These people I'm matching with actually are my cousins. So she was the one who encouraged me to get on. But then once I was on, she kept directing me to the matches. I didn't really care about the matches. I was looking at the ethnicity estimates. But she was like, no, 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 go look. Look, Don't you see some Black people in there? I was like, yes. She's like, those are your cousins. Those are actually your cousins. That's real. And It took a while for it to sink in, like, because also I didn't really know what to do with that. Like, I tried messaging a few people and they would, you know, they would say, well, who are your people? And go, I don't know. (laughs) You know, I don't don't really know who they are. I was born in Seattle, you know. So these conversations, if they ever started, if people ever wrote me back, would kind of go nowhere pretty quickly. And so that was from like 2016 to 2018. 
Until we found a match, my friend kept prodding me. I, meanwhile, was listening to adoptee podcasts a lot more and getting like all this opening up in my brain about actually what I had lost as an adoptee, even though I'd gained a family, I definitely had a loss first and there was a big loss. And so I just kind of circled back to those matches and finally really prodded with one and got someone to test. And then they came back a first cousin match and then, well, all hell broke loose pretty much. We <laughs> became, became obsessed and we went on a crazy DNA detective ride that just, wow, it was such an amazing experience. So yeah. it was one specific cousin initially that you contacted? Well, actually, it turned out to be a, a child, I, like a young, I don't know, 11 or 12 year old who had matched pretty high with me. And it was her mother answered me and said, oh, it must be her dad you're related to. So there had been a little conversation with him, but he hadn't gotten around to testing. And I finally in 2018, actually, it was 2019, 2018, we chatted. 2019, I circled back and said, look, I'm sending you a kit. <laughs> like I got a little more forceful. <laughs> and he said, okay. And he did the kit. And then he popped up as a first cousin match. Oh, and wow. that's, yeah. So, and then he also started to get it that I really didn't know who my biological father was. Like he was like, wait a minute, you don't know. We have to figure this out. And so we kind of started more testing and more testing and hunting things down and wrong families for a while and mix ups. And oh my goodness, all the things you're talking about. There's some often unexpected, sometimes unpleasant surprises along the way. <laughs> so, mm. Like his dad wasn't who he thought his dad was. You know, little things like that. Anyway, it was quite a story. I'll have to write a book someday. But anyway, ultimately found my birth father successfully identified who he was. Okay, so that's huge. How yeah. did he react when you first contacted him? Well, I actually first contacted an uncle. And so my uncle was the one who first contacted him. Funny enough, my friend and I who had sleuthed a bunch of things and there was a lot of genetic genealogy tree building that was going on, especially with ending up in the wrong family accidentally for a while. Um, <laughs> but what, we would stalk people on Facebook. And, you know, anyway, she was really amazing, my friend. And there was a point at which we'd identified sort of a, in this crazy way, a name that we, we became very interested in. And then we saw that his mother, the picture of his mother that we found on Ancestry looked like me, like I looked like her. Exactly. And I had to like, sit down. It was one of the most pivotal moments of my life looking at that photo of who is now I know my grandmother. And so this man whose name we had, whose mother looked like me, turned out that we had a Facebook friend in common. And it was a gym owner. And I thought, well, everybody knows this gym owner. He's a black gym owner in Seattle. There's not too many of them. Like I used to go there, whatever. Nope. Turned out that one of the owners was the daughter of this man. In other words, my cousin, because this man turned out to be my uncle. So I had known my cousin had worked out at her gym, had taught dance classes there. That <laughs> meant that I had an in, like I freaked out and called her. She was so confused. She knew what was going on. And I got connected. It was the perfect, not, you know, way to not have to do a cold call to this man. She set that up to talk to him and He's the one I'm thinking he could be my bio dad, but there were like, oh gosh, how many uncles do I have? I can't ever keep track. There were like eight boys. My grandmother had eight boys and three girls. So there were a lot of men <laughs> that could have been my birth father, but only a few that were the right age. So I thought he was, but I met with him and he was like, nope, I was in a different state. That wasn't me. But he goes, you know, my brother always pretty much only dated white women. So I think it might be him. And so he called him and my birth dad was like, you know what? I'd want to know. I'd want to know if I had a daughter out there. So let's do this. So we all met up and had a pizza party, like basically 
with my one of my aunts um, came over to my uncle's house and right away they were like, we're just going to adopt you, even if the DNA doesn't come back. Uh, We just love you already. And but my birth dad was staring at me and and my aunt going, you look just like her. And then he's like, you look like mama. (laughs) So anyway, even before the six week wait was over, we had figured out through uh, some other conversations, we pretty much sort of knew that it was it had to be right. And it was got the results back. And he's my birth father. So that was in March of 2020, right when the pandemic started. Yes, it was a very interesting time. Oh um, my goodness, that is a lot. Oh, so, yeah. so your father, your birth father, didn't know that you existed. Correct. Had no idea. What a crazy <laughs> ride for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he he had no idea, and the whole family. I mean, obviously, also didn't know. So they've been very welcoming, and it's been kind of more than I anticipated. I don't know, as someone who grew up not even thinking I needed to know anybody or whatever, now that I have gone through all this, I can't imagine not knowing and, you know, seeing my face and everybody's faces and understanding where I came from and also have now reunited more with my birth mother's side. And so I feel, I finally feel like I have the full picture and it has all impacted me. My, my relinquishment, people always talk about adoption, but they ignore relinquishment because before an adoption has to be relinquishment and there is a loss before you gain anything mm. else. And so I have, you know, been coming to terms with what I lost because that's the difficulty of reunion is if it even goes well, many don't, is that even when you get along, even when you really care about each other, you're still kind of strangers pretty much. And then also it's bittersweet because you realize you missed out on you can't really be part of the family. They they take you in, but you don't have all the history. You weren't there with them all these years, you know. So mm. it's like you, it gets more poignant what you didn't get to experience. But anyway, overall, I really hit the jackpot. Big win on that side. So for sure, on all, on all of it, really, all of it's been amazing. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it's it's almost like this, you're suddenly aware of this alternate life that you could have lived if circumstances had been different. Yes, exactly. And there's um, always pros and cons, you know, there's good, there's sometimes, there's, sometimes you're like, no, it's good. I was adopted. And then sometimes you're like, ooh, darn, you know, or whatever. So it's just everything. It's like a huge yeah. mixed bag. Very interesting. And I mean, you said that you obviously looked like your grandmother. Yes. Did this meeting unlock any other sort of interesting understandings about your yourself or your identity? Definitely. Well, there's a lot of genetic things that really do get handed down. I think that's what's mm. amazing. You know, people, most people, many people, right, they, they're used to their biological family, you know, having nurture and nature both in their family they grow up in. But when you grow up in with just the nurture side, you know, where you're with people who are not your biological family, it is very fascinating to then find out what is genetic. And there are some things that are so strong, (laughs) some of the silly lighter things. But I remember when I went to go meet my uncle for the first time, we actually met and had lunch and he ordered a Reuben sandwich. And I was like, do you eat those often? He's like, oh, this is my favorite sandwich. And I was like, hold on, just I'm going to call my husband. And I called my husband and my husband, neither of them knew what I was doing. But I put my husband on speakerphone and I said, OK, I'm here having lunch and say right now without thinking, what's my favorite sandwich? My husband's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, just tell him what my favorite sandwich is. And it's like Reuben, you know, and stuff like that. Like yeah. where or I found out like my family, my whole life has teased me, my husband, my son, everybody, because when it comes to ice cream, I'll look at all the wonderful flavors. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll have this. Maybe I'll have that. I'll taste everything. And then I'm like, vanilla. And they're like, wow, you're so boring. My whole black bio family, that's all they'll eat is vanilla ice cream. And that's actually something they put on like 
23 and me, they're, they're like, you're more likely to prefer vanilla over chocolate. Oh God, like really? That. That's so specific. <laughs> I know. I had no and idea. And like fear of heights. I got that from my, yeah, from my bio dad. I think the craziest thing though was more about without getting deep down this, besides travel now, I'm obsessed with like genetic genealogy and all these things adoption related. But I will say the most fascinating tidbit was that I was born basically afraid of water. And my adoptive mother was so perplexed by this. I hated a bath, like bath time, which usually newborns even love being bathed. And I, it was like someone was killing me. And I had that for much of my childhood. And it was something they really had to work with. And then I found out talking to my birth father that when he was 12, he almost drowned in the lake, big lake here at Lake Washington. And he, I mean, he had to be resuscitated and he still has PTSD from it. He still has never swam again. He won't go in any deep water. And my bio brother on my birth mother's side is a biochemist and he knows a lot of things. And he was like, oh yes, that's when you get those markers on the DNA that like traumas get handed down. It's like a flag that gets added. And so the fact that he had that huge trauma very likely was passed on to you. I'm not afraid of water because I got worked. I mean, not in that, not like I was. I'll go swimming in the ocean, but not too far. Um, but, But it was a fascinating thing to realize like, wow, that's just amazing that, you know, that I think I believe it. That it got handed down to me. So fascinating. Oh my goodness. You mentioned earlier, you know, the challenges of tracing black genealogy. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. So as I became again more well versed with things like building trees, you know, and then of course the more I began to understand who I came from and you know, I just became obsessed with the fact that I could get this knowledge and I really wanted to know as much as I could. And I had some profound experiences with genealogical discoveries. I'm very fortunate because, yes, Black genealogy in this in the United States is very difficult when you're property. You're basically not traced as a person. So there are no names if you get into the slavery times. There's, I think, the 1870 census is the first one where Black people appeared. And so, like, their actual names and the, where they lived and everything. Before that, their marks on a paper like so-and-so owned this many women or this many men of these ages. So you might get close enough to say, well, I think this person, my ancestor, was in this household. And look, there's a woman who might match the age. But you don't have any names or anything. No marriage records, nothing like that. So there's what they call the 1870 brick wall, so to speak. You may get lucky, though. There are ways that you can find information. And I've taken a lot of workshops and attended conferences where I've learned that you can't really give up, even though this quote unquote wall exists, because sometimes you hit a jackpot and find things often in wills, slave owner wills and things like that. Other paperwork, bits of things from like Civil War pensions, even those little little bits of information you just want to know, like what who was the slave owner of this ancestor? Sometimes you might find it in the most unlikely way, a little anecdotal story over here in this little book that was written. So it just there's a lot of extra work that has to be done. And many people have to be content with just knowing they've gone as far as they can back in time and then try to just learn about the history of maybe the area or, you know, like in my case, South Carolina, where the ships were coming in and people were being brought in from Africa and kind of piecing together what could have been. But one of the great gifts I was given is there was there is a woman in one of my family lines who had been doing research on this family, the Gamble family, since the 1980s, when a lot of elders were still alive 
And she had been, you know, handwriting all this stuff. There was no ancestry. There was no computer stuff like that, you know. But she has a lot of stories and things like that. And she'd written a little book that she self-printed. And in that book, there's a lot of information about this one line going back to before 1870. And when I was reading it, she sent me a copy. I met her through Ancestry. I had one of the next big shocks of my life was that in that book, in the first description about the family, it mentions slave mother Mary, who all these Gamble family members descended from, but they said not much is known about slave mother Mary's mother. But we do know her name was Lizette. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because Lizette is not a common name in English-speaking countries, and it's not a a name that appears anywhere else in our family lines, but my fifth great-grandmother and I have the same name. That is a crazy coincidence. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I kind of became obsessed with her. Like, I need to uncover everything I can about her. Like, I feel like she's asking me to know more about her. So that's where I do get frustrated because it's hard. But that ultimately is part of why I ended up going to South Carolina last year. And I'm still trying to learn about her. But there are frustrations and also a lot of heartache because you do find your ancestors listed in wills along with property being left to descendants, white descendants. So, you know, it'll say Edwina, you know, Perthinia, Drayton are being left with the uh, pigs and the wagons and the cutlery and the, you know, it's literally like it's, it's just very it's one thing to know the history, know what happened. It's another thing when you literally see your family and relatives Mm. being left with pigs to somebody. But anyway, I saw Lizette's name on on that document. And she also does appear in the census in 1870 as a 60-year-old woman. And it's just really amazing. When Even if it's painful, it's still wonderful to see their names and know where they were. So So you said that somebody in your family had been tracing the gamble family Mm -hmm. line yes so when you got in touch with them they were like oh yeah we have this annual family reunion is that how it happened that you went to Charleston yes so and mind you this woman wasn't really known to the people here in Seattle which by the way I have a huge black family in Seattle they all are here the immediate family it's like a hundred and some people all here so this is huge family however it's my great-grandfather so the, the father of my the woman I look like my grandmother right her father went by a different last name because he was adopted by a different family, but he was originally a Gamble. So a lot of the people here didn't even know about the Gambles. So they were like, what? Wait, who, what? Although they did know in some ways because some of his children had the last name of Gamble. And some of the people here, my, my aunts and uncles had met some of these other, you know, with the name Gamble. So they weren't like, we don't believe you, but they were just like, oh. So none of the people here knew any of this history. But this one woman, Raymunda, she kept sending me these great, you know, this great book and information. And she said, why don't you come to one of our annual family reunions? And it turns out a lot of Black families do have these reunions kind of based on genealogy and they all get together. And so they often don't all know each other very well. It's a distant cousins. But even the family name that my great grandfather was raised under, the Trotters, they have family reunions. I might go to one of those, even though I'm not biologically related. But yes, the Gambles were having their annual reunion, although it had been postponed, of course, because of the pandemic in 2020, 2021. They finally were like, we're doing it again. And it just happened to be because they meet every year in a different place. It happened to be in Charleston. And that immediately got my attention because I knew that the Gamble slaves had all been held originally outside of Charleston. 
And from there, were moved. My line, my great-grandfather's group, they ultimately were moved to Arkansas. So my grandmother was born in Arkansas. My, my birth father was born in Arkansas, you know, and they came to Seattle from Arkansas. But before that, they were in South Carolina. So I signed up to go. And actually, my uncle, who I first met with, who loves Reuben sandwiches like me, he went also because he really wanted to know about all of this. So I'm intrigued to know what your first impressions of Charleston were. Is that your first time that you've been there? It was. It was my first time. And, you know, I realized I'd never really been in the South like that. Like I've been to Virginia, which is considered the South. Mm. My adoptive father is from Virginia. And actually, I'd been to Virginia earlier that year to do this honoring trip because he passed away, sadly, at the end of 2020. And so I was struck there with such the deep, you know, the deep history growing up on the West Coast. You know, we don't there is a deep history of like indigenous people here. But as far as the European, quote unquote, part, you know, it's not that old. But in Virginia, it is. And certainly all the slavery history. Well, Charleston felt like way deeper south, like just felt like I had gone into the belly of the beast. And it's beautiful. And I know like, you know, in the travel circles, I'm part of a lot of women in travel you know, conferences and things, my podcast. And, you know, I hear a lot about Charleston and how beautiful it is and the food and you hear all these great things. But for me, it was like, it was all those things, but it was also deeply disturbing. It's so beautiful, but it feels haunted. Yes, that's a great way to put it. And it's like, it's haunted and it's the history. It, you see it in like the buildings. And like, I remember going on this tour, I went on a Gullah, a Gullah, Geechee, more like Gola tour. Highly recommend doing something like that if you want to get the full picture of the history. But, you know, this man who knows everything, takes you around for three hours to the islands, the sea islands, and then, you know, drives through Charleston and like, oh, here's the big lynching tree in the middle of town. And here's the, you know, here's this, here's that. And he would point out with the houses, you know, beautiful homes. He had positive stories also, but he's like, you know, oh, yeah, see those horrible spiked iron fences? Yeah, that's because they were outnumbered so hugely by slaves here that they were in constant fear of uprising. And so just the sight of those, they look awful, like definitely would impale anybody who tried to climb over. I don't know. That just sort of hit me. And then also just interesting things like how there ended up being like the Gullah culture or the Gullah and the Geechee culture where there was, you know, it's considered still the most African based culture in the United States because they could withstand the way they being the enslaved people could withstand malaria or, you know, the mosquitoes and the heat and things that the Europeans just could not. And so they would be out working uh, the rice and, you know, the white people would be like hiding in Charleston, trying not to get bit by mosquitoes. But that allowed for them to be a little bit more to themselves and maintain more of their culture. And all of that was fascinating, but also just so, I mean, part of me was like, that's great, right? But then it's mm-hmm. like, ah, it's just so... I don't know, heartbreaking. And the fact that it's so beautiful there, you know, it's all built on the backs of slaves. Exactly. And all the homes. Yeah. And all the homes have like slave quarters in the back. Mm. And, you know, it's just it's there all the time. You can't get away from the slavery there at all. The history of slavery, I should Mm -hmm. say. So anyway, but I I did love it. And I want to go back like I I feel like I want to go back because it has so much. It feels like the cradle or something of African-American history. There's a new museum opening up there soon, International African-American History Museum, something like that. I'm probably butchering the actual title. But anyway, I'm actually a charter member, so I should say it correctly. <laughs> uh, but 
it's going to open. It was supposed to open in January. They had to delay it a bit. But, you know, it's facing Africa, like on the docks where they used to bring the ships in. And it's going, I'm sure, to be an amazing museum. It's just an important place for Black people in this country. So I, I will be going back. Did you, while you were there, did you go to Hilton Head Island at all, to Mitchellville Freedom Park? I did not make it there. And that's one of the reasons why I need to go back. A lot yeah. of my trip was cut shorter than I intended, which added to kind of the surreal quality of it. I was dealing with a lot of health issues. It meant I couldn't eat the wonderful food, you know. But anyway, I'm going to go back. And that is one of the places I want to go to. We had the executive director, Ahmad Ward, on the podcast a few months wow. back. And it's just such an amazing story. And I can't believe I mean, we, I went there on a trip and he gave us a tour of the place. And I was like, how, well, for listeners who don't know, it was the first town of freed, formerly enslaved people in, in the mm-hmm. United States, right? like before the Emancipation Proclamation. So it really is hugely significant in American history and no one knows about it. Right. <laughs> I was like, how does no one know about this? This, is, this should be in history books, shouldn't it? Exactly. There's so many things like that, which is why I recommend doing the tours that people don't talk about. They talk about foodie tours and all of this. Like, please go on the Gullah tour. Please do, yeah, go visit these places that are important, but for some reason we're removed from history because no one wants to, you know, embrace that part of the history, yeah. but it's real. And there's a lot of amazing aspects to Charleston's current culture that, of course, is so deeply informed by the African people who lived there. And I don't know, it would be a shame to cut off that's a huge part of what Charleston is about. So anyway, important to know all of the things. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did your experiences in Charleston inspire you to launch the Traveling My Roots project? Right. So I'd actually technically had launched it before that because I had Traveling My Roots started when I well, really, if I want to be honest, the seed of it was there when I joined Ancestry in 2016. You know, I wanted to go to Africa and needed to know where. But of course, once I found my biological family, knew all the names, knew the people and all of that, I really solidified this idea that I really now could go to the places my ancestors were from. And I became fascinated with the idea of DNA travel, you know, heritage travel, whatever you want to call it. And so much so that I decided I wanted to really like take a travel sabbatical of sorts and do this thing. I think how this trip really cemented it is because at the same time that I At the beginning of last year, 2022, you know, I was able to, well, in big part because of my adoptive father, you know, he had passed away. He did leave me a little bit of money and I was able to put that aside to do this kind of traveling. So I was able to wrap up a lot of work projects and things like that. And then my health went sideways. And so then I entered this very confusing period of, you know, health issues and chaos. And it started to feel like I wouldn't be able maybe to do my project in the way I had envisioned. I became distracted, understandably, by the health issues and somewhat dejected. And maybe in some ways thinking, well, maybe it was meant to be, you know, I it is a gift that I don't have to work right now while I'm dealing with these issues. It was a huge gift, actually. I had time for medical providers and food changes and all these things. But I could feel that dream, that thing I was, you know, had been so driven to do was kind of fading out. And I'm so glad I just decided to go on the trip to Charleston anyway, because I was in the middle of a lot of very troubling symptoms. I was originally going to be there two, I think two and a half or three weeks prior to the reunion to do a bunch of research. I cut that out. I almost canceled going, but my uncle was looking forward to it. He was going to come down for like five days. So I thought, okay, let me at least 
match the five days. Like, I'll go with him. And thank God I did. Because it just, you know, I still had challenges health-wise, significant ones while on that trip. I ended up pretty sleep deprived and I couldn't eat any of the good food due to a variety of problems that involve not being able to swallow properly. So nonetheless, that trip, it taught me so many things. One was to prioritize what really matters and just find a way to do it. Kind of back to my adoptive mom with that full leg cast on the beach. You know, That was me carting my applesauce around to different restaurants while everybody's eating oysters. Well, actually, I could eat oysters as long as there's no butter. But, you know, just doing what I had to to make it happen. So I learned that I could do it just and also that I could do self-care while traveling, even when things are really difficult. And then I had this huge experience open up to me that I've never, I mean, First of all, seeing my grandmother's face and ancestry, what a what a powerful moment. Finding out I had the same name as my fifth great grandmother, another incredible moment. You know, seeing my faces in all my family, really amazing. But then going to Charleston and then getting on a bus with all these distant cousins that, you know, would be like, well, which line are you from? Oh, I'm from John, John Gamble's line, you know, and meeting third cousins and fourth cousins and them just being like, we love you. And like, I don't I can't even explain. And then getting on a bus and going together out to Neesmith where our enslaved ancestors were held together. Like I could have gone there alone, but to go with a busload of people who I'm related to, I mean it makes me emotional to think about it. To go somewhere where we kind of shouldn't even know where it was or what how it all happened, but because Raymunda had done her di- diligent work and she was on the bus too, we could go there and we could walk around that area and the land. There wasn't, you know, a house to visit anymore, or there is, but they don't let people go there, whatever. But we went to a neighboring house. There were, of course, very tight-knit families back then. And so they intermarried. So we were in a different kind of family. But sitting with a woman who told us the stories of her great-grandmother, her grandmother, who knew all the other people, the Gambles, you know, and getting that flavor of what it was like to work the fields and to hear the crickets and to feel the punishing heat. Did I mention this was August? I mean, serious heat. I don't mind heat, but that heat, whoa. Yeah, the humidity Uh, is crazy down there. The humidity is outrageous. I used to live in Tucson. Like, I've been in some heat, but that is no joke. And to imagine working in the heat like that, I just, you know. So that experience just reignited or further lit the fire to continue because that was just, you know, one place on, I have a long list that takes me to Europe and Scotland, Albania, you know, definitely the African continent, you know, and so it's given me what I needed to really keep, A, working on my health issues so I can hopefully travel still and I am traveling, but also B, just remember that why I'm doing this. And it gave me pieces of myself back that it's hard to even put into words what it means for me. But um, I'm still sifting through. It's like I'm reintegrating my whole identity right now. I'm kind of, you know, understanding a lot of things now. And I feel like I can claim even the history of this country felt, I felt removed from it, you know, and now it's personal. So what a special trip. It was truly amazing. We made connections there that we didn't know we had cousins here in this area in Seattle. So even for my uncle, it was very powerful. And you know, he considers me now like the family historian. <laughs> so we wanted, we're going to do some presentations here, you know, that kind of thing. So it just feels like I'm being brought even deeper into the family in kind of a unique way that way too. And how cool for your son as well to learn about all of this. 
Yes, exactly. Handing it down to my son and to the other younger people in the, in our family. And yeah, it's amazing. So where is next on your trip? So I'm actually going to Sicily in a few months. And on my birth mother's side, it's really interesting because <laughs> any way you slice it, I think it's just humanity. You know, of course, it's easy to focus on the African-American experience and slavery and all of that. I also descend from Irish. Very strong. I'm like actually a third Irish. And there's a lot of persecution. Like my really? Irish ancestors all moved to Scotland because they were in Northern Ireland and they were Catholics. So they left. But anyway, then there's like Albanian. I People always in my bio family, I even knew before I met them that I was part Italian. That's how I understood it. Then I met them and I understood it was actually Sicily. But then even when I heard the name of the town that all my ancestors came from, I was like, hold on a minute. Doesn't that mean place of the Albanians in Italian. And so then sure enough, I found out this little place is still very much an Albanian enclave. It's very much like their official language is, I think they have two official languages, Albanian and Italian. And my DNA, I'm only like 2% Italian. I'm like 20% basically Albanian, that area. And all of my ancestors, my great grandparents on my maternal, let me see, her father's side, so my great-grandfather, his parents were both born in this one town and literally as far back as I can go into like the 1600s, everybody was born in that town. And they were there because they fled Albania, they were persecuted, and Italy gave them land in the 1500s. So like on all sides, it's like the Irish getting <laughs> persecuted, the Albanians fleeing war, and then here the um, Black people were enslaved and brought, you know, so it's just like, wow. But I'm just fascinated by the resilience. And also it highlights when I when I'll be in Sicily. It's easy to go back in time on those records. I have so many records. It's like piece of cake. I can I can build way back. No problem. Um, so I'm going to go to Sicily with my husband. We, it's actually our 25th wedding anniversary and we honeymooned in Sicily 25 years ago. And we found out that the Another synchronicity. <laughs> I know. And the place in Taormina, I didn't even really plan all this because of this, but it just all fell into place. We're like, I'm like, wait a minute, it's our 25th wedding anniversary. And the place we stayed in in Taormina all those years ago is still running. And so, yeah, no, we're not just going because of the White Lotus show, okay? <laughs> I know it's timing with that, but that we really have a history there. <laughs> and so we're going to stay at Taormina and then we're going to go to a few other little places along the way and then we'll end up in Palermo. And right above Palermo is this town. So I'm going to spend at least three nights in this, in, staying in the village. And I'm literally dusting off. Remember at the beginning of this interview, I was telling you about Italian and studying in Italy. I'm dusting off my Italian. I'm actually taking Italian classes again. I haven't spoken Italian in like 30 years. And I had veered off into Portuguese because I did Brazilian samba dancing. Okay, I'm trying to dislodge the Portuguese. I'm trying to bring back the Italian because I hear that really nobody up in that little town speaks much English at all. So I need to get my Italian back. I understand it really well, but I need to speak it properly. And I'm really excited about staying there. And I hope to do some audio recording and just, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I do a lot of, I try to do audio recording. I hope to do a podcast someday and also some writing. Lizette, this is so exciting. Yes. So you've done some um, major investigative work. So many things. There's so many places I want to go. And I feel like I got super slowed down. Yeah. But I feel like that's part of the gift too, is I don't have to do this all in like two years and button it up. I get to just like slow travel it, I think, and just... Yeah, let it sprawl. Let it sprawl and 
get creative and go back more than once and, you know, see what I'm pulled to do. And there's a lot to research, a lot to take in, a lot to integrate, as I said before, but it definitely is all deeply changing me. What advice would you give to anyone else wanting to start their own genealogical journey? Well, hmm. yeah, because whether you're adopted or not, it's a fascinating journey. I would just say if you're up for it, do some DNA testing because you might have some matches in places that you want to go to. And so, you know, it just increases connection and that that sort of thing. Definitely, I am all about doing genealogy tree building, like do do your genealogy. I do have some tips and tricks that I actually hope to share with some people who follow my newsletter about going on genealogical trips. And I'm trying to think of a few of those now. Things like plan enough time. Here I just said three nights in the village, like that might not be enough, but try to build in some time to go to museums, of course, to courthouses, try to find the elders, figure out where they go, are there church services? I don't know. You know, do a lot of research before you go about things like that. You know, connecting with local historians and museums can help, they can help direct you, right? Well, when you're here, you should talk to so-and-so. They might have some information for you about that. I'm picking up some books right now about that village. There aren't that many books about that particular village or even the whole Albanian experience in Italy, which is actually a pretty big thing. There's a lot of uh, Albanian towns in Calabria also. And so it's like learning as much as you can before you get there. Yeah. And, you know, maybe having a, a genealogy buddy. I have a few like people who I meet with once a month. I have a particular friend who I meet with once a month and we just kind of share insights and things we've discovered to kind of keep that fire lit because it can get overwhelming sometimes and you could just kind of toss it aside like, you know, I've been talking about health issues or family things come up and you can be like, whatever, I don't have time for this. It's like, no, I do have time for this. This is fascinating work. And there's so many stories. I think it can sound dry to so many people like genealogy. That's kind of boring. It's like, no, there are so many fascinating. It's like watching a movie when you like find some information about an uncle who like died in a World War II plane crash and, you know, whatever. It's like uncovering these actual stories of people that you descend from is worth it. And then for me, that's what makes it more worth it to go to the place where these things happened. And speaking of your newsletter, where can people find you on the internet? Yes. So I have a website, travelingmyroots.com. And if you go there, there is a link to subscribe to my Substack newsletter, which actually I think is like Substack, you know, travelingmyroots.substack.com. But just go to travelingmyroots.com and you'll find everything there. I'm also on Instagram at jetsetlazette, which is kind of my old moniker, but I decided just to post, keep posting there for now. And then on Twitter at Travel My Roots. Thank you so much, Lizette. I've really enjoyed hearing about your, all your experiences. And it's just so fascinating. You can talk about it for hours and hours. And it's a really personal thing to share as well. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun talking about all this with you. Before you go, would you have time to do a quick fire round? Sure. All right, let's just dive in. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Traveling. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, gosh. I don't know why Dubai came into my head. So I'm just going to still <laughs> say that. Maybe I would go shopping, I'm assuming. It just popped into my head. Okay. What do you never, ever travel without? Uh, well, right now, snacks, <laughs> because I have a very particular diet. You're an expert travel hacker. What's one tip you can give to save money on travel? 
Oh, I'm all about the credit card sign-up bonuses. So it's not just putting all your expenses on one card. Please, please sign up and get different ones. You get many bonus miles after meeting minimum spends. I have a million and a half still after using a ton of them. So you can have a lot of miles too. (laughs) Um, What's a non-touristy destination you would recommend? Well, I'm going to go with what first popped in my head, which is there is a town in Mexico, a coastal town called Zihuatanejo, which I feel like every time I mention it, people go, where's that? So mm. even though there are tourists there, I feel like for some reason, there's a whole bunch of people who just still don't really know about it. We love it there and go there all the time. What's special about it? It's not so touristy. <laughs> and it looks like people, I think, sometimes call it the Mexican Riviera. It has beautiful kind of hills that plunge down to the water. It's quiet. There's some beautiful beaches that are easy to swim, really great for families. And it has that authentic kind of flavor of just like a smaller, it used to be a fishing village, and it's like a smaller, friendly Mexican town and great restaurants too. Amazing. Sounds great. Very doable, walkable and gorgeous and fabulous. Oh, and the water's warm all year round, unlike some of the places us Seattleites go to, like further north up the Pacific side. This one's down closer to Acapulco, so it's always warm and not far from Mexico City. Speaking of fancy hotels from earlier, what's the (laughs) best hotel you stayed at lately? Well, one of the favorites was staying at the Andas in Tokyo because they're way up on like the 56th floor of this amazing high rise. And we stayed there for free on points. And you look out over the city and you have floor to ceiling, huge, like a whole wall of windows. And even the pool area, which is on like the 54th floor or whatever it is, right below has a whole massive wall of windows and you can't even make it to the pool area because the changing room is so incredible. You might not even get out of the changing room with the dipping pools in there and the massage chairs and the snacks and the, I don't even know it all. That place really blew me away. And that sounds amazing. Um, do you have I, a recommendation for a movie, a podcast or a book for a long journey? I just read From Scratch, which I really liked. I think it became a Netflix show, which I haven't heard as many good things about, but I really enjoyed the book by Tembi Locke that is about a woman's journey through losing, it sounds kind of sad, but it is a little bit, it is sad, losing her husband, who was a Sicilian chef. And it's a beautiful story, and I really enjoyed reading it. So I really recommend that or Between Two Kingdoms by Suleika Jawad. These are kind of heavy books about like health and life and travel and loss and resilience. And I don't know, but I'm just enjoying those kinds of things right now. Uh, I read Between Two Kingdoms. It's amazing. She's a beautiful writer. She's incredible. And I know you are going to Sicily soon, but besides Sicily, where is next on your bucket list? Let's see. Well, I am going to go to Arkansas and almost went, but then we... We, did, we shifted to Sicily, and then I'm also really hoping to get to Senegal, where I have a friend living there. I was supposed to hit, hit Rwanda, but that got rescheduled. But I'm really looking forward to, you know, West Africa, doing some trips to Ghana. Benin is where I also want to go. Yeah, so I have a lot of places in West Africa I hope to get to. And then also Albania. Oh, but I am going back to Paris this summer. I just have a thing about Paris. I just can't stop going there. I love Paris. Oh, and I've got to get back to Scotland. That's the (laughs) other thing. I love Scotland, even though you have to buy scarves in July there. I went to Edinburgh. I was freezing to death in July, but I still loved it. All right, Lizette. Thank you so much. It's been awesome chatting with you. Yes, great to talk with you too, Esme. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. 
We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.